Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Got another great show for you this week. It's actually been kind of quiet, so we actually will be able to cover some news. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, how the public, some public DNA databases were used to track down a serial killer and what that might mean for you. Uh, we're going to talk about how Facebook moved 1.5 billion users uh, to avoid having to comply with the new GDPR rules in Europe. Congress is finally starting to question whether or not we are truly, quote-unquote, going dark, and I'll explain what that means here in a minute. Uh, there's been some really big advances announced uh, in this last week uh, for the security of Internet of Things devices. And in that vein, our tip of the week is going to be talking about how to help secure your own network against IoT, rogue IoT devices. All right, so let's get right to it. Um, so there's kind of a sensational story uh, this week about the Golden State Killer. Um and uh, I'll go ahead and give you the background just by reading this, uh, this, some of the story here from BuzzFeed. Let me just quote the story. It says, The man suspected to be the Golden State Killer who murdered 12 people and raped 51 others between 1974 and 1986 was finally captured this week thanks to an online DNA and genealogical databases. It's the first known case of law enforcement successfully using technology in this way, experts say. The Sacramento County District Attorney's Office confirmed on Thursday that what was first reported by the Sacramento Bee, that investigators ran the killer's decades-old GNA through genealogical websites and found relatives with matching segments of DNA. Quote, they then followed clues to individuals in the family trees to determine whether they were potential subjects, unquote, the Bee reported. Once they had identified Joseph James D'Angelo as a possibility, the investigators set up surveillance on his home and got a fresh sample of DNA, quote, from something he discarded, the paper said. Although everyone can be happy about catching a serial killer, there's potential for abuses if the technology is used in other ways, said genetic counselor Laura Hersher. Quote, it's the killer app for this technology, the literal killer app, Hersher, the director of student research at the Sarah Lawrence College graduate program in Gen human genetics, told BuzzFeed News. Quote, if people were using it to track immigrants would be rightfully up in arms, end quote. The Bees report did not say which company or service investigators used, leading to much speculation. The Mercury News then reported that lead investigator Paul Holes relied mostly on the open source website GEDmatch, that's G-E-D match, which allows users to compare DNA markers and family trees for free. The investigators did not need a court order to access the public site, said the Mercury News. In a statement, GEDmatch said that it was not directly approached by law enforcement about this case, but that it, was, it has warned its users about the possible consequences of uploading their DNA into such a public resource. Quote, while the databases were created for genealogical research, it's important that GEDmatch participants understand the possible uses of their DNA, including identification of relatives that have committed crimes or were victims of crimes, unquote. All right, so that's the end of the article, and that gives you the gist of what happened. So basically, there's this Golden State killer who is a really bad guy from way back when who is never caught, and... Uh, they decided to take some of the old DNA samples and they ran them through this uh, public free uh, genealogical and genetic genetics research uh, website called GEDmatch, G-E-D-Match. Uh, and I think that's uh, a take on GEDcom, G-E-D-C-O-M, which was um, a big uh, Church of Latter-day Saints uh, database uh, of genealogical research. Um, so... I guess I'd actually had not heard of this site. Uh, I'm more familiar with the for pay sites that we've probably seen on TV and, and web ads like 23andMe, uh, Ancestry.com, 
Uh, and there's another one, family tree DNA is another one where, you know, you send them a sample of your spit, they analyze it, they compare it to their databases, and they send you back whatever they know. Uh, which is to say that if they if they can tie you to some you know family tree based on your genetic markers, uh, then you basically get your family tree for free, uh, which is potentially some really cool information to have. Um, the downside, of course, and we've talked about this on the show before, is what are the privacy policies around this genetic information? This is you. As we talked about with some of the Facebook scandal, your privacy is something you can't restore if it's lost. Um, you know, so if somebody finds out some secret about you, you can't delete that. You can't, you know, remove that from somebody's mind record. Uh, it's, it's, it's out, it's gone. And, you know, so first of all, there's the companies that are collecting this information. What is their stated privacy policy? You know, how, how closely do they keep the stuff? Do they share it with anybody else? How easily do they give it up to law enforcement if asked? Um, there's, there's, there's that aspect, but even, that assumes that they can willingly and perfectly subscribe to their own privacy policy. And that's really where I get start to get worried. Um, so even if these companies are straightforward and, say, and, and secure and say, look, we're, you know, you're only giving this to us. We're only going to use it for your benefit. You're paying us for this service. So only you get to see this stuff uh, and we won't give it to anybody else unless served a warrant. Okay, great. But that information is still sitting there. And as we've seen over and over again, um, if they don't secure that stuff properly, it's can be hacked and stolen. And once that information is stolen, it's gone. Um, it gets out on the dark web or it gets out, you know, it gets out on the internet somewhere and those copies can be made over and over again. And that information is now available to the planet. And that's really, honestly, that's, that's, that's more what I worry about. I mean, you're paying these guys for a service. You, you, you're going to have to hope that they're going to at least do their best to, you know, protect their customers. But if they do it wrong uh, or they screw up or they don't protect it well enough and somebody hacks it, you know, that that's honestly what I'm most worried about. So obviously in this case, it worked out well. We caught a killer. That's always a good thing. Um, we just have to be cognizant of the ramifications of doing these sorts of things and and understand that it's while it does have some upsides and, and some potential uses that are good, um, there's a lot of ways this could be abused and we have to be very careful. And probably laws and uh, around this sort of things are, are not up to date and we need to get them up to date so we can at least enforce some regulations and penalties on these companies if they do it wrong. The other thing to remember that the key part of this case is these DNA, um, these DNA databases did not have the killer's DNA. So it's not like this guy went on Ancestry.com or 23andMe or JedMatch and decided he wanted to know who his family tree was and uploaded, you know, sent in a sample of spit uh, and got his own DNA in there. And that's how they found him. No, they found him based on relatives because, you know, if you remember your high school genetics, you share DNA with your family, which is to say that you, you know, you have roughly 50% of your mom's and 50% of your dad's DNA, or therefore you have roughly a quarter of each of your grandparents' DNA. You know, your siblings, I think, share about a half your DNA. Um, and so if any of those people have uploaded their DNA, that is, that is enough information for these guys to go digging around and match, familial matches, they call them, uh, the DNA that's in the database. So, you know, just realize that when you're uploading your own DNA, you're not just uploading your DNA, you're uploading your closest relative's DNA as well, basically. So, um, 
anyway, not saying don't do it. Obviously, there's some really cool aspects to this. Just understand that, you know, what you're doing when you do it. And, you know, if, if look through the privacy policies, make sure you check all the right check boxes on how secure you want to keep this stuff. And, you know, I don't know if some of these services like automatically will allow you to upload to GEDmatch too, um, which is sort of the centralized database for a lot of these things. Um, but just be aware of, who, you know, who you might be sharing this with. If there's any partner things or whatever, you know, I would try to limit that sharing as much as you can through the settings and contractual obligations that you can put on them through, you know, when you sign up uh, to keep that data as private as possible. All right, moving on, other news. So uh, Facebook and many other companies, uh, these global technology companies, uh, are soon to be subject to the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, which is a massive shift toward user privacy uh, in Europe. Um, they're leading the way on this, and Europe has decided that users need to be able to control their data. They need to know who has their data, who it's being given to, uh, delete it, change it if necessary, and take it back. Um, and, and it should be portable. All sorts of really nice things uh, that I wish we could have here in the United States. Um, and it's all coming online May 25th in, in Europe. And because a lot of companies, for tax reasons, have moved their operations to places like Ireland that had ridiculously low, ridiculously low tax rates, they would have been subject to these rules. So basically, um, you know what, let me just read it from the article. It's probably simpler. This is from Reuters, um, and, and it goes like this. Uh, Facebook members outside the United States and Canada, whether they know it or not, are currently governed by the terms of service agreed with the company's international headquarters in Ireland. Next month, Facebook is planning to make that the case for only European users, meaning 1.5 billion members in Africa, Asia, Australia, and Latin America will not fall under the European Union's GDPR, which takes effect on May 25th. The previously unreported move, which Facebook confirmed to Reuters on Tuesday, shows that the world's largest online social network is keen to reduce its exposure to GDPR, which allows European regulators to fine companies for collecting or using personal data without users' consent. That removes a huge potential liability for Facebook as the new EU law allows for fines of up to 4% of global annual revenue for infractions, which in Facebook case could mean billions of dollars. The change comes as Facebook is under scrutiny from regulators and lawmakers around the world since disclosing last month that the personal information of millions of users wrongfully ended up in the hands of, potent, of political consultancy Cambridge Analytica, saving, uh, setting off wider concerns about how it handles user data. The change affects more than 70% of Facebook's 2 billion-plus members. As of December, Facebook had 239 million users in the U.S. and Canada, 370 million in Europe, and 1.5 billion users elsewhere. Facebook, like many other U.S. technology companies, established an Irish subsidiary in 2008 and took advantage of the country's low corporate tax rates routing through it revenue from some advertisers outside North America. The unit is subject to regulations applied to the 28-nation European Union. Facebook said the latest changes does not have tax implications. So again, basically what... So, you know, Facebook... It, this is all kind of virtual, I think. I, I, I don't know if this literally means that, the, that they're moving data from hard drives that are sitting in servers in Ireland to hard drives sitting somewhere outside the European Union, or if it's just some paperwork thing somewhere where they say that, 
these users are now homed somewhere else. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it works. I'm sure the lawyers at Facebook have got it all figured out. But basically, what they're doing is they're, you know, rightfully, I guess, from a from their perspective, they're trying to limit their exposure on this GDPR thing. Unfortunately, what that means is that we could have, or a lot of these people could have gained some of the protections of GDPR without actually being in the European Union. Uh, but Facebook wasn't having that, so. I'd, I wouldn't be shocked to see other companies doing this. So you've probably noticed you're getting a lot of emails lately about changes of uh, their policy, their privacy policy terms, right? Uh, I've been getting a ton of them. And I'm, this is basically all these global companies now are having to update their privacy policies in relation to the GDPR. Um, so even if you don't live in the European Union, uh, a lot of these changes are still affecting you because these are global companies. So anyway, that's probably why you're getting so many privacy policy update notification emails. Now, another story I'm going to read to you here. Uh, this is about the what's the, the DOJ, the, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations and some of these law enforcement agencies are calling going dark. Um, and what they're saying is basically the increased use of encrypted communications is meaning that they can't wiretap anybody anymore. They can't spy on people and get their, the information they need to catch the bad guys. So you probably recall there was a really big case a couple of years back in San Bernardino when that shooter went nuts and he had an iPhone and the FBI wanted to get all the information off that iPhone. Um, and Apple basically says we can't. Um, there were a lot of nuances to that case that a lot of people didn't catch at the time. Some of those being that Apple did offer to cooperate to its fullest extent possible. Um, but what Apple has done, and I, I think rightly so, being a, obviously being a privacy person, um, what a lot of these companies are doing is saying, we value our customers' privacy, and we are going to put in technological solutions that actually make it impossible for anybody but the user, uh, in most cases, to access their communications, because we believe everyone has a right to privacy. And law enforcement is basically saying, yeah, okay, that's great, except for when we need it, we need to be able to get to that data anyway. The problem is, technologically speaking, there's no half measure uh, that works. There is no master key you can create. There's no back doors you can put in that doesn't just ruin it for everybody. Uh, it's an all or nothing proposition. So you either have privacy or you don't. Um, and Apple realizes that and a lot of technological companies do, but the law enforcement agencies have been really pushing hard and they have been for years for some sort of special access. They want a door that only they can walk through and there's no such thing as a door that only good guys can walk through. If you make a door for good guys, that door can be abused by anybody. Um, so anyway, let me let me read you a little bit of the story. And this is a, an article from uh, David Reese from EFF, who we've had on the show a couple times. So uh, let's read this article. Uh, let me read a bit from his article at the EFF. In the wake of a damning report by the DOJ Office of Inspector General, the OIG, Congress is asking questions about the FBI's handling of the locked iPhone in the San Bernardino case, and its repeated claims that widespread encryption is, caught, is leading to a going dark problem. For years, DOJ and FBI officials have claimed that encryption is thwarting law enforcement and intelligence operations, pointing to large numbers of encrypted phones that the government allegedly cannot access as part of its investigations. In the San Bernardino case specifically, the FBI maintained that only Apple could assist with unlocking the shooter's phone. But the OIG report revealed that the Bureau had other resources at its disposal, and on Friday, members of the House Judiciary Committee sent a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray that included several questions to put the FBI's talking points to the test. 
not mincing words, committee members write that they are having, quote, concerns that the FBI has not been forthcoming about the extent of the going dark problem, unquote. In court filings, testimony to Congress, and in public comments by then-director James Comey and others, the agency claimed that it had no possible way of accessing the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone. But the letter, signed by 10 representatives from both parties, noted that the OIG report, quote, undermines statements that the FBI made during the litigation and consistently since then that, the on- that only the device manufacturer could provide a solution, unquote. The letter also echoes EFF's concerns that the FBI saw the litigation as a test case. Quote, perhaps most disturbingly, statements made by the Chief of Cryptographic and Electronic Analysis Unit appear to indicate that the FBI was more interested in forcing Apple to comply than getting into the device, unquote. Now, more than two years after the Apple case, the FBI continues to make similar arguments. Ray recently claimed that the FBI confronted 7,800 phones it could not unlock in 2017 alone. But as the committee later point, as a committee letter points out, in light of recent reports about the quote availability of unlocking tools developed by third parties, and the OIG's report findings that the bureau was uninterested in seeking available third-party options, these statistics appear highly questionable. Unquote. For example, a recent motherboard investigation revealed that law enforcement agencies across the United States have purchased, or have at least shown interest in purchasing, devices developed by a company called GrayShift. The Atlanta-based company sells a device called GrayKey, a roughly 4x4-inch box that has allegedly been used to successfully crack iPhone models, including the most recent iPhone X. The letter ends by posing several questions to Ray, Uh, designed to probe the FBI's going dark talking points. In particular, whether it has actually consulted with outside vendors to unlock encrypt phones, it says are thwarting its investigations, and whether third-party solutions are in any way insufficient for the task. Okay, so basically, again, what this is saying is law enforcement's been complaining for many, many years about not being able to access these encrypted communications and saying it's hampering their efforts for law enforcement. Um, however, basically what we've found out lately is that's not really true. What it seems to be happening is that they're trying to use these cases, these very sympathetic, uh, law cases, uh, like the San Bernardino shooting to try to force vendors to give them backdoor access to all of our encryption. Um, and saying that if you don't do that, we can't do our job when in actuality, it appears that is not true. In fact, they had other options available to them and they did not take them. Uh, in some of these cases, um, if they had gotten to Apple within 24 to 48 hours, Apple could have done some things with the phones or with their iCloud backups that would have allowed them to get to that information, but they didn't. Apple offered and they didn't accept uh, their help. Uh, and what it really looks like here is what they're trying to do is use these cases to force change uh, in these manufacturers when they really did have other options and they just were not forthcoming about having those other options. So... Anyway, even just putting all that all that aside, uh, of course, you know me, uh, I'm still coming down on the side of privacy is good for everybody, and we're actually in the golden age of surveillance. Just because they can't uh, decrypt some of these conversations, you know, easily by just tapping it on the cloud, that doesn't mean they can't bug these people. I mean, what did they do before this was the case, right? But what did they do before people had iPhones? Um, you had to actually put people out there. You had to put people on the street um, and do shoe, shoe leather work to, you know, track people, surveil people, uh, stakeouts. Um, it costs manpower. It costs time, which meant you couldn't do it very well or couldn't do it very often. Uh, you could do it well. You just couldn't do it often. 
Um, but now, you know, law enforcement is basically saying, hey, you know, we could, by sitting at our desks, tap everybody at once, all the time. Um, and that is just, that's not the way it was supposed to work. And that's not the way it was envisioned by the founders, I'm sure. So uh, a, a natural physical way to restrict that is to make them have to go to the things they used to have to go through, which is, you know, find these people through regular met means. There's all sorts of other metadata and things out there that they could be looking at um, to surveil people. Uh, you know, GPS, your phone reports, all sorts of things. They can still go to the phone companies and get your locations and get the list of people who you talk to and all these things they could still get. Um, so I don't have a lot of... Uh, I don't, I don't personally have a lot of sympathy for this. And I think that we have, it's a very, very slippery slope and we have to be very careful. And I, I think, you know, uh, at the end of the day, in the bigger scheme of things, uh, having encryption is way, way more important um, than, you know, breaking everybody's privacy at a whim. Because, again, you can't, make a, you can't make a key that only good guys can use. You can't make a door that only good guys can walk through. All right. Now for our main story of the week, and uh, we'll lead right into our tip of the week. Uh, there's been some really positive news today coming or in the last week coming from Microsoft. Um, and I wanted to share it with you and kind of explain why it's such a good thing. Uh, this is going to get a little technical. I apologize, but I'll try to explain it all to you. Uh, Microsoft announced this new thing called Azure Sphere. And if you're not familiar with uh, Azure, A-Z-U-R-E, uh, it's, a, it's a marketing term that, that Microsoft uses for a lot of their cloud services. Um, and what they've done is they spent a lot of time and money and resources putting together um, a hardware and software platform for the Internet of Things. Now, the Internet of Things, if you recall, uh, is the notion that we're going to be connecting basically everything to the Internet so that all these things like everything from your refrigerator to your light bulbs to your thermostat to your um, baby monitors, uh, your Amazon Echo devices, all of these things are cooler when you can hook them to the internet and they can talk to each other and do uh, more things that can be controlled remotely, accessed remotely. Um, and, you know, that offers some really cool new features and things. But of course, it also brings up some major security and privacy concerns, uh, which we've talked about many, many times on this program. Uh, and the problem with all these IoT devices, these really cool nifty new devices that can do things they couldn't do before. They're, we're making these dumb devices smart. Um, but in doing so, we're exposing them to the internet 24-7. And that means that hackers anywhere on the planet can be sniffing around and trying to find vulnerable uh, devices and then coercing those devices to do their will. And that could either be trying to hack into your house or hack into your other computers on, on your network. Uh, or just silently kind of taking over these devices and in the background using them as part of what we call botnets, uh, bot being short for robot, um, uh, taking over these devices in, in en masse and uh, using them for other nefarious purposes like uh, denial of service attacks. Uh, we've talked about that with the Mirai botnet. Uh, that was used to take out Dyne DNS, which wiped out a lot of Internet access for a lot of people on the East Coast of the United States a couple years ago. Um, and so basically what they what the bad guys do is they find ways into these little unprotected or poorly protected IoT devices, webcams, DVRs, smart TVs, webcams, things that people expose to the Internet, but the manufacturers didn't take the time to secure them well. Uh, so they were hackable and they continued to perform their regular function. So as a user, you wouldn't know that anything is wrong. But behind the scenes and under the covers, these devices are what hackers like to call pwned. PWN uh, pwn, which means they've been hacked, they've been taken over. 
And so you get a whole bunch of these devices, thousands of them together, and you say, I don't like this website over here. So I'm going to have these devices send a massive flood of requests to these devices, either directly or indirectly, and try to bring that site down or, or overwhelm it to the point where it's unusable. That's called a distributed denial of service attack. And that's just one way that these botnets could be used. Um, and again, like I said, as a user of these devices, you probably don't even know it's happening. Um, and the hackers love that, right? They've got this silent secret army of devices out there that they're using, and the owners are clueless. So anyway, so that's kind of the backdrop of why security is so important and why IoT is both promising and scary at the same time. So Microsoft has announced this new platform, and it's both hardware and software, uh, for IoT devices. And so and the really cool part about it, not not it's not just that they're coming out with this thing, but they're basically making it royalty-free. Um, obviously, anytime you create hardware, that costs money. But some of the things that cost money in making these hardwares is buying licenses from the companies that that sell you the bits, parts of the of the hardware. Uh, you have to pay licensing fees because that's how those companies make money. Um, so this new chip, uh, along with uh, uh, some some software that goes with that chip, has been produced by Microsoft to be extremely secure and extremely cheap. Uh, which is exactly the combination that we need for these IoT devices, which are very, very cost sensitive. Um, and it looks altruistic. Of course, these things are going to work very well with a lot of services that Microsoft already uh, already offers in the Azure cloud and things like that. So, you know, that there is some indirect benefit to Microsoft for, for doing this. But it's really nice that they're releasing this. And let me just kind of go over some of the... Um, some of the aspects of this, and this is where it gets kind of technical, but I'll try to uh, explain it because I think it's important for us to understand how many things have to go into making these things secure for them to, to really be secure and worthy of putting out on the Internet and trusting. Um, so anyway, Microsoft uh, identifies seven principles that they think that all these kind of devices need to have. Uh, first of all is a hardware-based root of trust. Okay, already lost you, right? <laughs> so... Basically, what this means, though, is that is that the the hardware, the chip that they're going to embed in whatever device you're going to make you want to make smart, has got to be unique, and it has to have an unforgeable identity it, built into the hardware. Cannot be changed. Uh, absolutely trustworthy. So, one of the very first things we need to be able to do with any of these devices be able to uniquely and um, securely authenticate each device. Uh, the second thing, it's got to have a small, trusted computer base. So that is to say that uh, to do security right, you have to be able to have a set of cryptographic keys um, that allow you to not only talk uh, through encrypted channels, but also to do things like digital signatures. So you can authenticate things and make absolutely sure that they came from the device's manufacturer uh, or whatever. Uh, so you know for sure uh, what, uh, who you're talking to and, what, and who you're dealing with. So, you know, like the iPhone was one of the first devices that made a really big deal out of this. They have what they call a secure enclave. Uh, and that is a highly protected, very specialized bit of hardware that holds all of your private keys um, and will not divulge them. Um, and has a little bit of software wrapped around that that allows you to use the keys without actually pulling them out. Uh, so that's another key element is being able to have these private keys that 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 only the hardware knows about, that only the hardware can access. Um but then could be used for all the cryptographic functions, including authentication, encryption, and all these things it needs to do to be secure, um, right, right built into the hardware. So that's point number two. Point number three and point number four kind of go together. Uh, it's defense in depth and it's compartmentalization. So um, what you want is you don't want 
all your security eggs in one basket. So there are multiple different security mechanisms built into this one little magical chip that, that they've designed uh, such that even if you get somehow managed to break one of them, you don't break them all. And that's part of the compartmentalization thing too, where, you know, think of a castle with all its various areas. You know, there's the outer gate and there's maybe an outer wall and an inner wall. And then there's the keep, the big keep where the king is all, all his gold is kept, right? There's, there's different sections, you know, they, and if a bad guy, if he's really going to get in and get the king, he's got to go through multiple different layers to get there. So that's both defense in depth and compartmentalization because uh, just because one part may fall doesn't mean the whole thing falls. Uh, so this has that built in too. So uh, this device, this one little chip, has everything on it you need. So it's got built-in Wi-Fi. It's got built this secure enclave thing. Um, it's got all these things built into it, but they're all also separate. So that if for some reason you were to compromise, let's say, the Wi-Fi chip that's built into this, that wouldn't mean that you'd then be able to compromise the rest of the chip. So again, great ideas, great concepts, all built into this chip. Uh, point five is it's got certificate-based authentication, which we've kind of alluded to. And this is, again, heavy-duty crypto stuff. I'm not going to get into it. Basically, what it means is it's a way to ensure uh, that not only the chip, we can verify that that chip is uh, safe and secure, but whenever it's talking to somebody else, that it knows who it's talking to and that the, the communications is private and has not been tampered with. And where that comes into play is part six, which is called renewable security, uh, which is that the software is automatically updated uh, all the time from the cloud. So this thing is, these things are meant to be networked. They're meant to be connected to the internet. Um, and when you do that, um, you're exposed to attack all the time. So if bugs are found or if new features are added, we want to do it securely. We need to be able to get software from the cloud down to the device and update it remotely. That is crucial. So many of our devices that are, are insecure have no way of being updated or are very hard to update, which means that they don't get updated. You know, how many of your IoT devices that you have in your house have you ever updated? Have you have you ever even updated the like, for instance, the the uh, the firmware that comes on your Wi-Fi router? I bet you didn't even know you could do that. You can and you should, <laughs> but most people don't. So the idea behind this is that these th these devices will do it themselves automatically, which is exactly the way it should be because people just will never do it if you ask them to do it. And most people don't even know it's possible. So finally, and the last one is uh, what they call failure reporting, um, which is to say that these devices, when, you know, when someone's trying to hack them or when something is going wrong, these things will report back up to the cloud, uh, up to the mothership, so to speak. Hey, something's going on here. Something's fishy. Uh, something you should know about. And that is feedback. That is metrics. That is that it's a crucial part of this whole system is, is to know how things are how things are going uh, and when things are going wrong so that you can take action to fix them. So, um, that, again, all these seven points are crucial and they're all built into this new system called uh, Azure Sphere uh, that Microsoft has produced and released um, for free. So the, basically the chip design that they came up with is highly secure chip design and the, and the low-level software that runs this chip is now freely available for anybody else to use and copy, um, which is, you don't see that often these days. And so that's a really big deal. And I want to really give a big shout out to Microsoft for that. Um, that's great. And this is exactly kind of the leadership that we need and the technology that we need going forward. And hopefully, because it's free, uh, it will be widely adopted or at least, or even widely copied, it doesn't matter. Um, so that, you know, companies that, you know, are trying to create these really super cheap devices that do cool things can now save money, uh, and do it the right way by, um, taking this secure technology and using it in their products. And just to give you a couple examples of why this is, why this is so important. Um, so I talked to you about the Mirai botnet, so that's one, but also, uh, these devices can be used to get to more important things. 
So the Target breach uh, a couple of years back, you might remember when Target had so many of its credit cards uh, stolen from its credit card database, and had to warn all you know warn all its customers you know to get new credit cards or whatever. That happened because a hacker didn't hack directly into Target's database. Instead, they got to that database through the HVAC system. That is the heating and air air conditioning had was connected to the internet. It was an IOT system. Um, you know, I'm sure so it could do remote remote maintenance and monitoring and you know, why not? Everything's connected to the internet. Why don't we connect our HVAC system as well? Well, the the security of the HVAC system was bad. So the hackers hacked that. That was the weak link. And then from there was able to get into the internal network and hack the rest of the stuff. Um, another option or another, uh, another story that we'll bring it home. Uh, there was a casino that was hacked and all their high roller database information, all, all their big spenders, um, that they had info on their, in their files were stolen and it was stolen by a hacker getting into their network through a fish tank thermometer. <laughs> this fish tank thermometer was an IOT device. It was on the network. Why not? <laughs> so, you know, so some guy somewhere could be monitoring all the casino's fish tanks from one location without having to actually go physically visit them. And he could, you know, maybe he could change the water temperature remotely, whatever. The security on these things were not good, but they were hooked up to the network like everything else. And once the hackers got through this little device, they were now on the main network and were able to hack the, the really juicy stuff. So let's let's take those lessons learned. And let's apply those to our home networks. Uh, you might not think about it, but if you've got a Wi-Fi router in your house, you have a home network. Uh, and you've probably got a bunch of smart devices in your network that are on your Wi-Fi network or maybe hardwired into your network with Ethernet cables. Every, you know, what You've got a home network. You've got a bunch of devices in your home that are all talking to each other and then talking to the Internet. So if those devices are talking to the Internet and they, their security is poor then those are beachheads potentially for hackers to get into your home network and then get to everything else within your home network. Your router is a really big wall and a moat and a gate. Um, and using our cash hole analogy, it's, it does a very good job of keeping the outside world separated from your inside world, your home network and all the devices, your iPhones, your iPads, your computers, your smart TVs, your smart thermostats, your Amazon Echoes, your Fire TVs, your Apple TVs, all the, all those devices that, that are network devices that you have in your home um, are all nicely self-contained within the comfortable, high, thick walls of virtual walls that are provided by your Wi-Fi router. But if one of those devices is out talking to the internet uh, and is not secure and can be compromised, now you've basically got a mole. You've got you've 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 got a chink in your armor. You've got some way in, and then all the devices in your home are potentially exposed. So what do we do about that? Well, there's a couple things, and that come, brings us to our tip of the week. Um, the main part of this tip, and there's a couple couple parts to this, uh, is to take all of your Internet of Things devices, these smart thermostats and you know, baby monitors and smart TVs and Amazon Echo devices, all these things, and put them on a separate network. And how do you do that? Well, almost every modern Wi-Fi router, and that's the little box with probably has some antennas on it. Maybe not. Sometimes they don't have them anymore. But um, the little box that you hook up to your cable modem or your DSL modem or your fi cable, uh, Google Fiber modem uh, that 
allows your devices to connect via Wi-Fi or via wired. It's got some ports in the back where you can put Ethernet cables into them. So some of your devices might be hardwired, but most of them are probably done through Wi-Fi. And that Wi-Fi router, almost all modern Wi-Fi routers have the notion of what's called a guest network. So what that really means is it can create a virtual separate network. Think of it like kind of like a parallel universe inside your home where uh, there's two Wi-Fi networks. And and what you want to do is you want to enable that guest network and put all or as many of your IoT devices as possible onto the guest network. What that means is they're all, you know, you take all these potentially insecure devices and you segregate them. You keep them away from all the devices in your home that you really worry about, like your laptops and your desktops and uh, your computers that might have some really juicy info on them uh, for the bad guys. So how do you do that? Unfortunately, it's really hard to give you uh, one solution to do this. So there's a couple things that you need to figure out. First of all, do you own your Wi-Fi router or are you using the Wi-Fi router provided to you by your internet service provider? Uh, that latter case is becoming more and more popular and I don't like it. Um, I always recommend that people buy their own Wi-Fi router and control it themselves. Um, so if you want, maybe this is your opportunity to go buy your own Wi-Fi router. You can get them fairly cheap or you can get them expensive depending on what uh, how much money you want to spend. If you've got some really heavy-duty you know, stuff in the house that's doing a lot of video streaming through the internet and things like that, you might want to get yourself a more high dollar router, which might run, I don't know, hundred, 150 bucks. Uh, otherwise, if you just have some regular old web surfing, you know, email kind of stuff going on in your house, you can get a much cheaper router, uh, probably down to $50 range. Um, I'd, I'd shoot for at least a hundred bucks though, if you're going to get your own router. Um, and here's the tricky part. Every one of these routers has got a different uh, way of accessing it. Um, they all do it the same way, but they don't all have the same address. Um, so within your house, your router is kind of your 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 root address for all the uh, internet protocol addresses in your house. And I know this is getting technical, um, but it's not as bad as it sounds. Just kind of hang in with me. Um, so your router is probably like a 10.0.0.1 IP address, or maybe a 192.168.0.1 IP address. These are IP addresses. Don't let them scare you. These are how computers talk to each other. This is, um, how we, um, how they send messages back and forth to each other using these as their to and from addresses. Um, if you ever look deep into your network connections enough, you'll find your, every device in your house that's on a network has its own unique IP address. And your router is kind of like the base address. Um, so um, you can find it a couple ways. So if you go on a Mac, it's actually pretty easy. If you go on a Mac, you can go to your system preferences and then find your network preferences. Uh, and right there, you'll see a thing called router. Um, and that's your router's IP address. Um, for instance, mine is 10.0.0.1. And that's not giving anything away because that address is only available inside my home network. You could not get to that address um, from outside my house. So uh, you're, you could have the actually you could have the exact same address because these are only internal addresses. It's like think of like a college or something where or a big corporation where these are like mail stop addresses. These are not if someone would try to send something to mail stop 125, uh, that wouldn't mean anything to anybody outside your company. Uh, same thing here. So uh, you need to find out your writer's address or if you're lucky, sometimes. Uh, the router manufacturers come up with some kind of standard names for these things that will uh, that will still route to this internal address. Um, they're DNS entries. So if you own the router, uh, see if you can find your router's manual, uh, the one that came with it, because that will tell you somewhere in the manual, it will tell you how to get to your router's administrative web page. 
Um, and it's a web page that you access through a web browser like anything else if you're going to google.com or Amazon or whatever. Uh, same thing, except that in this case, you either put in the IP address of your router, which, um, like I said, on the Mac, you can find through system prefs, network prefs, and then look at the router, and you just put that number right in your web browser. Uh, on, a, on a PC, it's, it's kind of harder. Um, there's two ways. If you can open up a command window, um, which is CMD, if you can search on CMD within Windows, it should bring up a command prompt. It's a little black rectangular window with a, with a text prompt. Uh, and if that text prompt, you can put in uh, ipconfig, I-P-C-O-N-F-I-G, and hit return. Uh, and there you'll see your default gateway address. That will be your router's address. Um, otherwise, you've got to go through some kind of crazy... Windows doesn't make it easy to find, um, unfortunately. Which is one... If you've got the information that comes with your router, that'll be easier because it'll tell you what that will be. Uh, anyway, you need to figure out what your router's IP address is or how, or if there's a domain name that will route to that address that will be um, in your uh, the documentation that came with your router. Or if you know what kind of router you have, you can also look it up online uh, and find that information there as well. So you need to get to your router's administrative web page. Uh, get to that. Um, you type it in the address in your web browser, and you get in, you'll, then you'll need to log in. Or at least I hope you need to log in. <laughs> they should be protected by a password. Uh, it's usually the username is usually admin, A-D-M-I-N for administrator. Uh, and then there's some password. Um, and it's usually a stock fixed password, and that's bad. So one of the very first things you should do once you successfully find this web page and log in with whatever your default uh, admin password is, is change that password to something else, anything else. Just don't use the standard. Because if the bad guys get into something in your in, in your house, if they, you know, if you bring an infected laptop in or some friend brings an infected iPhone or Android phone in and it starts snooping around inside your network, it's, that you know, that device, your friend's device or whatever is now, you've brought it into your home. It's within the walls of your castle. Uh, and it's now can freely do all sorts, get up to all sorts of mischief on your network. Um, and if your router has got a default password that's only accessible from the interior from your home network, now that you've brought something into the network that's rogue, that's got, uh, it could access and do all sorts of bad things. So you always, always want to change your router's admin password. So once you get to the admin page, the first thing I would do is find out, uh, Go through the options to figure out where the password is for that administrative web page is and change it. Save it in your password manager because we're all using those, right? LastPass or whatever. If nothing else, write it down. Uh, but make it a good password and make it not the default. Okay, step one, change your admin page or find your admin page. Step two, find your admin password, change it to something non-default. Now, <laughs> look around in there uh, in your in your router settings, and again, every router manufacturer does things a little bit differently, but there should be something in there called a guest network. Uh, that might be under an area called LAN for local area network. Um, find your guest network and enable your guest network. Um, it should just be a checkbox to turn that on. You might have to restart your router to make it work, uh, which will mean that'll take you um, that'll take you off the internet for you know a minute or so. Um, do that. Set, to enable your guest network. Uh, and then once you get that done, all the devices that you've got in your home that you've managed to somehow get on the Wi-Fi network, you need to switch the IoT devices, the devices you don't want to trust from your regular home network to your guest network. And that will isolate those devices uh, from your, your regular home network devices, your computers and laptops that have some you know, really good information that a hack device might want to get into. 
so the, the good thing is most of these IoT devices only need to talk to the internet or maybe to themselves. You know, maybe you've got like a bunch of light bulbs in the house that actually kind of talk to each other and then talk to the internet, or, or you've got a couple thermostats in your house that talk to each other and talk to the internet. They don't generally need to talk to anything else in your home network. So that's why isolating them um, won't hurt, shouldn't affect your functionality at all. But if for some reason those devices were to be compromised and taken over or hacked, at least they can only get to the other IoT devices and the guest network, and they can't get to the really good stuff, which you keep on your home network. Okay, I know that was tricky. I know that was a lot of stuff. You'll have to listen to this. I'm gonna, I will create a blog entry about this as well. So you can go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can find some more information there, and I'll link out to some other great um, sites that'll help you with some of this information, help you get these things changed. Uh, but let's just just to recap. Um, you want to isolate your IoT devices as much as possible from your um, your regular computers and things on your home network. And the way to the best way to do that is to put them on the guest network of your Wi-Fi router. And almost every modern Wi-Fi router comes with a guest network capability. Um, so it basically creates two separate segregated networks in your home. You put the untrusted stuff on the guest network, including your guests. For that, <laughs> that that's one reason they call it a guest network. So when you got you know people bringing unauthorized devices into your home. Don't trust them. There's no reason to just put them on the guest network that gets them to the internet. That gets them what they want, but it keeps them segregated and apart from uh, your home network devices. Um, so get into your, you got to figure out, you know, how to get into your router. You got to find the IP address of your router get to its admin webpage, uh, change your admin password, please to something besides the, the default, and then start moving your devices over to the newly enabled guest network. So again, firewallstonesubdragons.com is where you want to go if you want to check my blog entry on that and get some more info. And uh, that's the tip of the week. And I know it's kind of a, um, I know it's kind of a technical one, but uh, it's also extremely important. And it's just getting more and more important as we keep adding more and more of these smart devices in our home. Uh, we really need to not trust them yet. <laughs> you know, maybe when this Microsoft Azure thing takes off, we'll feel better about that. But until then, uh, we need to segregate those devices as much as possible. Okay, that is it, folks. That's our show for the week. Thanks for listening in. Uh, we got another great show coming up next week. If you'd like, you can go to patreon.com and you can find out other ways you can help support me in my efforts to uh, educate the world on, on all these issues and getting us all more safe uh, on the internet and protecting all of our devices and privacy. Uh, check that out, uh, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, uh, and look up Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons there. You can also, of course, go to my website, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, where you can find links to the book on Amazon uh, of the same name, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, there's great blog entries there. You can sign up for my newsletter, which now comes out every two weeks with uh, more of these tips and um, links to other great information. Uh, check that out. And be sure to tell your friends and family and get everybody else uh, educated and, and point them my way. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I'll see you next week. And until then, as always, don't get caught with your garbage. Time.